text without a context is a con. There you go. Oh my word, I can't <laughs> believe you just said that. I feel like if I try to add anything to that, it would be absolute drivel. Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody, welcome to Scattered. Uh, We're starting in the book of Esther today and I am here with Jill and Mary going through this book in which God is not mentioned a single time. So ladies, Esther 1 and 2 provides the setting and kind of sets the scene for the rest of the book of what goes on. So let's start. I do love a good context. Text without a context is a con. There you go. Oh my word, I can't (laughs) believe you just said that. (laughs) So what is the context at the beginning of the book? And who are each of the characters that are introduced? Do you know, I struggled to find Esther. When you guys were like, we're going to study Esther, I was like, oh, great, Esther Nehemiah. Went there, it was Ezra. So turns out it's after Nehemiah, after I'd gone to the content. So I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, it's later in the Bible than you expect, isn't it? Because I was looking at Paul Jump's shelf of um, commentaries and I was looking around Ruth somewhere and was like, oh, does he have any on Esther? And like, it's a whole, yeah, 500 years later. I'm not sure this is filling the listeners with any confidence. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that most... The listener, it depends, you know. That's my key fact, that we're 500 years on from Ruth. So um, that's a long way along a commentary shelf, and that's a long way along the Bible contents page. (laughs) Yeah, so it comes after Nehemiah, doesn't it? And it's... So they are in exile. Uh, Sorry, they being the Israelites are in exile, but some of them have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and some haven't like there's this huge dispersion the reigning like powerful kingdom at the time is this Persian kingdom of which uh Xerxes do we say it like that yeah Xerxes uh, like a really huge, this kingdom I think is bigger than uh, Bab- Babylonia had been. Like it was absolutely huge and the Jews were kind of dispersed through it. Mordecai had ended up there from being taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, that's in chapter 2, verse 6. So yeah, the, that's why these guys are here. That's kind of the context. Uh, it's about 470-ish years before Jesus. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's about 50 or 60 years after they, after Cyrus let them return. We don't know, do we, why these guys are still here? Um, and, you know, we can't comment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It, it's kind of like some things within Ruth that we looked at last time. You know, there's just it's just they're there. And there's no comment that's made on it. We can't extrapolate anything from that. I guess um, when Mary was saying earlier about the, the extent and the size of this empire, it was apart from a little bit of Greece, it was the entire known world at the time, wasn't it? That was within this empire. And yeah. it went all the way from sort of India, Pakistan, all the way down to Ethiopia. So Northern, Yeah, Northern Sudan, I think. Yeah. So like, it's a massive area, like huge. Yeah, so tell me about the guy who's leading the empire. Tell me about Xerxes. Yeah, he likes banquets, right? Do you know, apparently in this book of Esther, there's 10 banquets, which is, I think, quite relevant because each of them are kind of significant for different reasons. So I think in these first couple of banquets, it says in verse 4, doesn't it, for a full 
180 days, Xerxes, this guy, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He wants to show everybody how powerful and how great he is, doesn't he? He wants to show his his wealth. He's probably very rich to be able to, to feed everybody for 180 days. All these military leaders, princes, nobles, it says in verse uh, 3. And then he throws another banquet, doesn't he, in verse 5 um, for seven days, which is for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So we're in Susa which is apparently one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, so quite an important place. Um, and again, he's got this lavish banquet going on where we, it's described, isn't it, these beautiful hangings of blue and white linen and all this gold and golden um, goblets uh, and royal wine in abundance. So everyone's basically drinking a lot and enjoying the wealth of their nation. Um, he, I think he's that kind of king, isn't he? And I think we're supposed to be impressed by it, aren't we, at some level, just by the lavish um, nature of it. Something I read said this is the most lavish and impressive description anywhere in the Old Testament, apart from when Solomon's temple is finished. So, um, yeah, it's um, abundant, isn't it, in its um, wealth and shininess. Yeah, if you're going to have a pave, pavement of poor porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones, then you are definitely trying to show people how wealthy you are, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's a, this is about Xerxes trying to show his honour, isn't it? Like, look how amazing I am. Look how strong I am. By the way, his name actually means he rules over men. There you go. There's my geeky moment for you. Thanks, Hermione. I think, I think we, what we need to remember here is that Xerxes is this really powerful man who's trying to honour himself in this banquet. He's probably fundraising for a subsequent war with the Greeks that's going to happen. So the original readers reading this would know that he's throwing this banquet to raise funds to show how great and mighty he is. And then in three years' time, he's going to suffer, or a few years' time, he's going to suffer a humiliating defeat by the Greeks. And so this would have been read with a sense of irony by the original readers. And the other thing that we need to remember as well is that the Jews were in the empire, but they were tolerated, not encouraged. So like the kings were only lenient as long as they towed the line. And Xerxes was really concerned with sort of religion and customs. And so the Jews were in this precarious position of being regarded as particularly troublesome because their rituals and their customs were so very different from the Persian empire that they were tolerated but as soon as they stepped out of line, they were smashed. And so there's this this sort of, um, I want to use the phrase juxtaposition, but I feel like I'm going to get mocked. Of, I have no idea <coughs> what that is. That, uh, that rings all of, my um, English bells. I love that word, Helen. <laughs> I'm so What's glad it I'm mean, you Jill? Happy, Jill. Tell us, Tell us what it means, Jill. It means opposing things put side by side to draw that comparison clearly. Wow. Wow, the Masters has really paid off. So... <laughs> We've got Xerxes, who's like a man of status and sovereignty, um, controlling power versus the Jewish vulnerability um, of being a dispersed people tolerated within this mighty empire. And then you've kind of got another kind of big contrast, haven't you, where you've got this powerful, rich guy who loves showing off his possessions and obviously he sees his wife as one of those possessions and goes and says 
you know, commands his eunuchs, and don't let me get onto eunuchs, I think that's awful. Um, he commands his eunuchs to go and get her to display her in front of all of these people. He wants to say, you know, look at my beautiful queen. Um, this is who, you know, I get to go to bed with tonight. Aren't I amazing? You know, and, and I just think it's interesting, isn't it, that she's like, no. And the one, you know, he's got all this power and he's got all this authority and all this wealth. Um, and yet this this uh, queen of his, she stands up to him and she says, no, I'm not going to be par- paraded in front of your men. Um, I just thought that was interesting. And she was already outside of the banquet, wasn't she? Because like queens aren't, weren't supposed to come to these banquets because they were so debaucherous and so awful that presumably for her own protection, she wasn't allowed at these banquets. And then suddenly to be expected to be brought in. Oh, my word. <laughs> Well, she was throwing one of her own, wasn't she, at the time? So, you know, she was being asked to leave her own banquet to basically be a sex kitten, wasn't she, for his drunken friends. Yeah. Uh, good good shout, Vashti, Vashti to say no. Mm. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting as well that, you know, this whole event is an opportunity for Xerxes to honour himself, and yet Vashti violates that with a simple word you know he's like look at me I have all this authority and power and might and yet the irony of it being undone by by a woman saying no was was uh was pretty interesting sorry you go well no I was just going to say Helen like you said earlier the original readers would have read this in the context of he suffers a massive defeat really soon and I think it's laughable isn't it in some ways so yeah it's impressive on one level but it's laughable that he's got all this power, all this land, all these people, and yet he can't control um, anything, really. And he can't control his anger. Like, he lashes out at his queen uh, in his anger, doesn't he, and basically expels her from his life. In that moment, you kind of wonder what kind of a... a, I mean, I know in those days women... Uh, were seen by men as quite dispensable but you wonder what kind of relationship they had for him to just throw her out of his life I mean at the beginning of chapter at the beginning of chapter two you see that he remembers her and what he's done but that I don't think that's necessarily with regret um he's, I, he's ashamed isn't he he's he's huge he's displayed his huge wealth and then this one person has has shamed him in front of all these people. And I think that's a lot of the time where anger comes from, isn't it? When we're angry, it's often because we feel some kind of shame about something. So therefore we almost want to cover that shame by being angry. Yeah. And I I don't think this is a wedding. This isn't a marriage, is it? That in any sense of we would understand as a modern marriage, because when we read a bit further on to what happens next and when Esther becomes queen, it's not in any sense a relationship of equals, is it? No, <laughs> no. This section of the book has received quite a lot of feminist analysis, hasn't it? Um, it's been jumped upon by feminists. Uh, so what, what do you guys think about that? Let's, let's bring what limited knowledge we currently have of Esther herself into it as well. How should we look at this part, this book, um, in terms of feminism? Well, the first thing I wanted to say on that was just what Mary referred to earlier, don't start me on eunuchs. This, I think this, this part of the book just shows that the empire uses people full stop for its own ends. It uses men to, um, as eunuchs 
and that's not a choice that they make there. Just like Esther was chosen because she was beautiful to come into the harem, so men are cho- so young men were chosen to be eunuchs forcibly. And so I think it just shows not necessarily from a feminist perspective, but from all perspectives of human dignity and identity that the empire used people. Yeah, like I I was reflecting on like the characters in this book and I'm not sure that we can set our moral compass completely in line with any of their morals. Um, I think Queen Vashti was very brave. She must have known the consequences of what she was doing by saying no to this very powerful man. And I think I think it's okay to stand up in a, in a society like this is a society where women are obviously objectified and used um, by men. And I I think it's I think it's good to stand up to that, you know. And what happens afterwards, you know, when his um, when Xerxes advisors are like, right, what are we going to do? Because this is so embarrassing. Um, and they're like, right, let's tell all the husband, all, all the wives have to respect their husbands now, because otherwise they will all not respect their husbands. And it's just, it's just that I think outside of uh, this is outside of God's kingdom here. And I think respect doesn't come, does it, from just being told to respect somebody because it's law. Respect comes from the husband loving you, and the husband being. Christ to you and showing and reserving you and then you know that that respect that you have it's because you respect God and and you love God and you want to respect your husband and you know I just think there's this ugly respect here the the kind of respect that's forced out of someone and it's just I've kind of gone off the subject of feminism here and into the no it's fine it's an abusive Um, relationship isn't it hmm. I guess that you could make an argument that sort of Vashti's saying no shows strength of character to challenge, um, using today's language, I guess, smash the patriarchy uh, and sort of that's structured around power and abuse um, of political and personal relationships. You could make that argument. I think you could maybe make an argument of Esther um, using her feminine intelligence later and wielding its own power, even when it encounters male domination. But I think Again, that's where you, when you look at this book as a whole, you need to look at it within the context of who it was written for and when it was written. You know, it, it actually, it just complies with cultural expectation. It was written for men by men. And so it's sexism or feminism isn't really a theme of the book because norms aren't challenged at any point. They're only assumed. Esther at no point actually challenges the social order. She finds her place and then she uses the power that she has. She, but she doesn't smash the patriarchy. She doesn't, she works within her place in the social structure. Um, and she contributes to society and to God's story through her bravery and intelligence. And so we can't say, I think, that Esther or Vashti champion the feminist cause I think we can say that they champion and God uses them mightily in his cause but I don't think we can use these these chapters to talk about feminism because if we're going to talk about Esther and feminism we need to talk about which we will do in a minute Esther and moral code (laughs) because oh my word so by the end of this bit this episode with Vashti what do we learn about the position of queen so being Xerxes queen what's it like very vulnerable 
and very easily replaceable. Yeah, she's just an object, isn't she? Yeah, we get like in our culture, I guess the queen just means something different, doesn't it? Whereas in this culture, someone who's there really to to give pleasure to the king and to serve the king. And if she stops doing that, then she's out. And she's got no dignity in her own right at all, as she she is just a a tool in his impressive armory. Yeah. So then, what do, what do we learn in chapter two about Esther and Mordecai about this process that she has to go and what the Esther has to go through? So Esther's interesting, isn't she? She's an orphan. So we learn that Mordecai took her in when her parents died. He's a cousin of hers, and she. I wonder how far, to which extent, she is just a pawn uh, in this process. Like all the desirable single young women in those days were gathered up um, to be taken to the palace to become part of this uh, selection of the king's new queen. Um, Christopher uh, Ash calls it a sex competition uh, where they are taken to the king, they spend a night with him, And Mordecai knows that's going to happen. I was discussing this with Dave and I was like, could they have fled like they were Jews? They know God's law. Um, Could they not have fled from this situation and and gone back to where some of the other Jews were? I don't know how uh, much Esther kind of went along with this, kind of hoping that she would become queen and kind of was excited about that. And we don't, there's no comment on that, is there? So we can't really say much about that but we do know that she got caught up in this process um and that she it goes really well for her i guess the chances of her being the winner were so small weren't they because there were so many of them so yeah i know it's interesting isn't it there's no comment on what she feels or what she thinks or how excited or otherwise she is but but it's it's interesting because three times it says uh talks about winning favor so in verse nine uh, she pleases the king's eunuch um and she wins his favor and then she's treated very well um and then in verse uh, 15 she wins the favor of everyone who sees her and then again she win- wins the the favor of the king in verse 17 so i feel like it's on purpose that the writer, writer has written it like that i think we are meant to see that there's something behind this however much of a moral compass Esther has we're meant to see that God is at work because God is the one really that gives favor favors not you know you can be as beautiful as you like and as nice as you like but God is the one that gives favor so I think we're meant to see in this passage that God is at work in granting Esther favor in the eyes of these people yeah I read that um in verse nine where it says Esther pleased Haggai um, that he that that word is the that was in the original language was the word hesed. So that oh, we that's familiar. Oh, is that a familiar word? It's the word hesed. That sort of um, loving kindness that can only come from you know come from the Lord. Like this person was sort of used by the Lord to display hesed toward Esther. Um, I think when we know that, that we can see clearly, more clearly, see God at work in this passage. The other thing mm. that I was struck by in verse seven was that we. You know, we're given both Esther's um, two names, her Jewish name and her Persian name. And I just think all through this passage, the first two chapters, we're to see that sort of identity issue that, that you know, how hard it was to live in the empire and to maintain any sort of Jewishness. 
like Helen referred to earlier, either you assimilated and became all but pagan, all but Persian, or if you tried to um, maintain your Jewishness, you there was the threat of being crushed. And so I thought it was fascinating that we get both of her names because I think that's how she's she's grown up, hasn't she, in that culture where she knows she's a Jew, but what does that mean for her? Because she's surrounded by all things Persian and that sort of real fight um, within her for what her identity is and who is she really. And that mm. is only magnified, isn't it, by the fact that then she's thrown into the harem of the Persian king. Yeah, and we don't get the sense, do we, that Mordecai himself was super religious or anything I mean often the Bible will say you know there was this godly guy or you know but it's just it's just Mordecai son of Jer son of Shimei son of Kish uh, which apparently has some kind of link to Saul um, King Saul but he's not exactly saying to her right this is your chance to show how amazing God is like think of Daniel uh, and his friends when they had a kind of similar situation they were very they acted very differently didn't they and they were lights to the people around them whereas Mordecai is like hide who you are don't tell anybody who you are and in one sense that might have been very wise again there's lots of cultural things we don't understand but in one sense it just doesn't make sense to me I feel like throughout the Bible we're called to be a light to other people and not to hide who we are and yet Mordecai is saying to her don't tell anyone who you are yeah and I think we're supposed to read from that though is it as well it's a vul- it's vulnerable to be a Jew in the empire and they're they're very vulnerable and so he tells her to hide it now I agree like I don't think that's what um the Bible says in other places but I think that's all there especially in these two chapters to highlight what a what a hard place it was to live in the empire and how dark and evil the empire was what do you guys think about just looking at this what do you guys think it speaks to us about given that we as Christians are now living in this post-Christian dark world what do you think it looks like for us to live in this world at the moment how can we wrestle with being light in the dark place and yet you want to be in the culture but not of the culture how how can we as christians do that effectively i i thought these two chapters were really helpful on that actually because it's painted isn't it as really impressive and almost invincible at the beginning is the empire and yet you see that the king's quite foolish and he needs seven eunuchs and seven advisors to help him make a decision about writing a law that's pretty pointless and so I feel like the bible author here the narrator has been is really clever at just sowing seeds of doubt about actually how powerful is the empire who's really in control here who's really um making the big decisions and moving people into position and like mary said earlier you see don't you that it's god that's granting esther favor and it's god that's putting his people into positions where they're not living remarkable lives but god's going to use them really powerfully as the one who's really ruling and reigning so I find that really helpful because I feel like these chapters, whilst they're really honest about how impressive the empire is, they're also helping us just to pull at a few threads to realise that it's not the empire that's in control and it's God who's still on the throne. And so that's the same for us today, isn't it? When it feels 
really hard to be faithful and to hold a biblical line on all sorts of moral issues that our culture today finds abhorrent. Um, yeah, I found it really helpful to think, actually, the rulers of this world are often no more than drunken fools like we see Xerxes here. And it's God that actually is the wise one who's in control. I found it really challenging that Mordecai overhears this plot. So we're looking at verses 21 onward now in chapter 2. Mordecai overhears this plot that someone wants, uh, these two guys want to assassinate the king. And he reports them and they get put to death. Um, and I was challenged by this because I was thinking, this king is not a good guy. Um, why would he, you know, why would he stop this this plan to assassinate him like why would he just not be like oh well they can just get on with their business and I'm just gonna sit over here and let stuff happen um and I wonder whether it teaches us something about loyalty to our leaders I mean in a sense this was something that wasn't a kind of big moral decision for him I don't think I think it was this is the leader of our country and I'm going to respect him by reporting this and I just found it challenging like who who our leaders are and how how do we stay loyal to them and respect them even when they are seemingly weak and making bad decisions? Um, it just challenged me on that level of finding that in my own heart. When I read the headlines and when I think about the leaders of our country or other countries, how much respect do I have for them? And would I do the same as, as Mordecai? Yeah, that's interesting because I really, in this little section, I really struggle to see anything good about Mordecai. <laughs> So I was like, you know, he's asking this girl who is his ward, effectively, to conceal her Jewish identity and basically ask her to make serious compromises in terms of her faith. And then this leads to the incident that jeopardizes the, the status of the entire Jewish nation. <laughs> so uh, thanks for that. It's helpful to, to think, OK, actually, Mordecai. You know, nobody is wholly good. Nobody is wholly bad. And that's so helpful for us, isn't it? On our, you know, on our worst days when we're tempted, like we talked about a few, a month or so ago, about to spiral into a shame cycle, that God's sovereign, isn't it? Even over our mistakes and over the bad things we say or the bad decisions we make. And this is such a good example of that, isn't it? Yeah. And I saw that with Esther as well. You know, this um, prior to reading this book, if you'd said the name Esther to me, I would have been like, oh, yeah, like she's such a good and virtuous woman. But we see in this chapter, don't we, that she doesn't presumably doesn't maintain dietary laws. She conceals her Jewish identity. She basically plays to win the Queen's con the contest for Queen. She, she loses her virginity in the bed of an uncircumcised Gentile to whom she is not married. And she wins that competition basically by being the best at sex. And then when later on you see in further chapters when she does risk her life, she only does it after Mordecai says to her, well, you're going to suffer and die anyway, so you might as well suffer and die trying. <laughs> you know. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know where to put her, you know, because I think we're so used to in our minds, particularly women, I think, in the Bible, we're so used to putting them into a virtuous, non-virtuous box. Whereas Esther is such a complex character. And I think we need to make, I think that's just going back to the boxes and feminism thing again, isn't it? That the purpose of this book, we should be reading this book with God in mind, 
not in Esther in mind. I think sometimes when it comes to books like Esther, we can make the leap from Esther and Mordecai to us and men we know without seeing God in the middle of it. And so when we read this book and we're looking at these characters, we need to remember that God is the one in control. God is the one who is commanding and controlling. And if we don't do that, we're going to lose sight of what this book's about. How do you think we need to read this book then, thinking about trying to apply it to our lives and trying to apply it to people that we're um, leading Bible studies with? Because it is in, it's, it's set in such a different context to our own, isn't it? What's the right way to be helping people to read it and apply it? It's such a different context, isn't it? And yet these people are human. Um, their desires and patterns that they see in their lives are not all that different to our own. If, we, if you kind of cut down all the pomp and go back to the basics, we've got a king who's very proud, who sees his pride, as, his kingdom and his wealth as such an important thing. And then that gets... Uh, exposed by his queen saying no and then that shame that he feels leads him to anger and doing rash things and I'm like well underneath everything I'm like quite similar to that Um, and then you've got Esther who is living in a really hard place and makes compromises potentially has grown cold in her relationship with God we don't know but could have done Um, And therefore that leads her to make decisions that she might not have done had she been with like a close fellowship of other covenant believers. I'm like, oh, we're not that different, are we? I also think even in this little section, we've already talked about it. This book really speaks to being one of God's people in a fallen uh, and dangerous world. And it talks to speaks to the, the vulnerability of us in this world. When Esther is described as what happens through this horrific process she goes through, you know, it takes several years, doesn't it? Because Xerxes is off losing a war um, whilst Esther's being prepared. There's loads of passive verbs in it and suggesting that she sort of wasn't responsible. You know, she was pretty powerless throughout this whole thing. Mordecai sends her off. And then throughout, you know, this stuff just happens to her and she's pretty powerless. Um you know, presumably after the no, Vashti was completely powerless as to what happened to her. Uh, Xerxes, the reality of it is that he's also completely powerless and out of control. Um, And so I, what do you guys think about um, the powerlessness sort of theme that you can see? Are there any situations either personally or more generally where you felt powerless? Yeah, the time that that comes up for me most is trying to speak lovingly and kindly into the sexual ethic of our world and how I just feel silenced and and I find it really difficult and I feel powerless really to be able to challenge the um the the current narrative and I, and I know my children in school find that so difficult they come home often and say mummy we were taught this today and I know that's not what the bible says but how do I explain my position in a way that can be heard in the classroom and it's so hard isn't it to it's hard to do that with personal friends let alone who would think differently let alone in a context like a classroom or in any sort of public debate so I I think for me at the minute that feels like the really hard space at work uh in the A&E department there are a lot of um LGBTQI people married with children um 
and there's an expectation of uh, opinion on that. And it's hard to know when to speak and when not to. Because you want to value relationship, don't you? You want to value the person. And yet, how do you challenge the narrative that is not godly? It's, it's very hard to know how to do that. Hopefully, maybe we might get some clues to that later in the book. And I just think it really, I think some of the characters that are being set up in this book, uh, I think actually the author is very clever because in pointing to these powerful, in inverted commas, people, I think really he's pointing at what true kingship and true um, power could be and should be. Um, I mean, we've got a king here who looks very generous, but actually is just in it for his own gain. Um, and then a king who that his kind of anger and underlying sin is exposed suddenly. Um, and I think the actual the actual lack of characters who we can put on a pedestal and say, well, this person's a godly person. I think the lack of that causes us to just yearn. Who Who is a good king? What is a good king? We know a good king. Um, a king who loves his people, a king who loves his bride, uh, a king who died for his bride, um, and a bride who therefore is empowered to love her king. Um, I think the lack of that here just causes this yearn in us. And I think in society today, I think there's this yearning, really, that people don't necessarily hear in their hearts. But I think society is yearning for a true king and I think people still are we're all looking for our king aren't we the thing yeah I, I agree Mary and the thing that I my heart landed on a little bit was that the contrast between this king has no real relationships does he he doesn't value relationships and people are just used as objects and what a beautiful contrast that is with King Jesus that calls us into relationship and that is all about relationship and like within the Trinity it's all about relationship and then we're called into that and our king who loves relationship and calls us into relationship with him and into then good relationships with each other and what a contrast that is with this king who can't even find decent advisors. I feel like if I try to add anything to that, it will be absolute drivel. So I'm going to call it there. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Uh, join us next week as we look further into the book of Esther. So we will speak to you all next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>